church, our Lord said, Why are you persecuting me? So Christ is still on the cross. Behold, I stand at the door of God. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You're listening to Behold the Man with your host, Joe McLean. Prepare me, Lord, for what you have in store. Prepare me for your truth. I am open, Lord. I am searching, Lord. Make your message clear for me. Buenos dias, que tal? Welcome back to Behold the Man. I'm your host, Joe McLean. It's great to be back with you again this week, and I hope your week has gone pretty well. Mine has been good. It's just been extremely busy preparing for a conference coming up July 17th and 18th with Dr. Scott Hahn in Corpus Christi, Texas. For more information on that, stop by fullnessoftruth.org. I'd love to see you there. If you can be there, stop by and say hello. The intro song was Prepare Me from the album Always What I Need by Michael James Met. You can check out his link on my website at catholichack.com. Well, this week we're going to be talking about the journey of Abraham. We're picking up our Bible study once again, following A Father Who Keeps His Promises by Dr. Scott Hahn. We left off last time in Chapter 5, and so that's where we're going to uh, take it up again. But before we do... Let's say our prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory and honor and praise to you, Almighty God, forever and ever and ever. We come before you humbly to just give you glory, to soak ourselves in your word. May you enliven this word to us. May you allow it to come alive and to make itself present in our daily life. We especially pray for those who lack faith. For those of us, especially, who need more faith, may you increase our faith, Lord. We believe. Help our unbelief. Give us the courage to walk with you in spite of the trouble that surrounds us, to take you at your word, and to trust you for the fulfillment of the promises that you have given us. Allow our father Abraham 
to speak to us through the ages, to encourage us to walk in your ways, to guide, to allow you to guide our path. We seek this and we pray for the Holy Spirit to come into our lives and take possession of us. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever rejoice, ever rejoice in his consolations through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, we read, quote, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The very opening of the New Testament links us right back to Abraham. It is critical that we understand the journey and the promises God gave to Abraham, because this is the foundation by which we can better understand the journey and the fulfillment of those promises found in our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the new Abraham. He is the new father of the nations, the very fulfillment of the covenant promises God gave to Abraham, land, name, and blessing. This is what we looked at in the last episode of our study in A Father Who Keeps His Promises. We were uh, just beginning chapter 5 of this great book, and we looked at this threefold promise God gave to Abraham. First, he wanted to make a great nation of him. He, he needed to give him land, and so he, he made a covenant with him, and he promised him to give him land. Then he said he would make his name great. He would give him a dynasty that uh, through his descendants, these fulfillments could be realized. And so he gave him a name, changed his name from Abram to Abraham. And then he gave them this this covenant promise, this blessing that through him and his seed, all nations would be blessed. And so we looked at each one of those covenant promises and we saw, we looked at them in a little more detail and we saw, you know, that each one of them pointed to our Lord Jesus Christ and how he would fulfill every single one of them. And so that's where we're going to take off today. But what I wanted to do today uh, is to look at his his journey and sort of step back, get that 30,000-foot view of the journey of Abram moving from Ur of the Chaldees into the Holy Land and becoming Abraham and looking at how his son Isaac would be that covenant uh, line by which the the promises would be fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ our Lord. If we read the Catechism of the Catholic Church, starting in paragraph 2570, we see, quote, When God calls him, Abram goes forth, as the Lord had told him. Abraham's heart is entirely submissive to the word, and so he obeys. Such attentiveness of the heart, whose decisions are made according to God's will, is essential to prayer. While the words used count only in relation to it, Abraham's prayer is expressed first by deeds. A man of silence, he constructs an altar to the Lord at each stage of his journey. Only later does Abraham's first prayer in words appear, a veiled complaint reminding God of his promises which seem unfulfilled. Thus one aspect of the drama of prayer appears from the beginning, the test of faith in the fidelity of God. 
I thought that was pretty interesting. It is a, a bit of a synopsis of the whole journey of Abraham. And it's interesting because as we led up to this point in the study, we started with creation. We moved into Adam and Eve, and then we saw the descendants, the son of, of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the sons rather of, of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, how Cain killed Abel. And through Cain's evil line, we, we see the, the, the evilness sort of manifold itself, you know, multiplying over and over again through Lamech and, and murder and polygamy and all this other stuff and how the evil line corrupted the good line. Because when once Abel was killed off, we read about Seth and how Seth is born in the image and likeness of his father, Adam, which is reminiscent of how Adam was born in the image and likeness of his father, God. And we see how through the line of Seth, the name of God is is worshipped and praised, unlike through the evil line of Cain and Lamech there, the, they look for a name for themselves. And so we see the play of these two lines from the family of God. And then God wipes them all out, save Noah and his sons. And so it's through the ark of Noah that he is saved through this water, this this tumult of water. And Noah becomes like a new Adam and a new creation. And then once again, immediately we saw how the, the good line and the bad line are, are started once again. Because Ham tries to circumvent the authority that Noah would have given to Shem, his son. And so he he has ancestral relationship with his own mother, trying to steal this, this authority away from his father. And it is from Ham that we get these evil uh, countries, these evil dynasties that, that sort of plague the Israelites down through the ages. You get the Philistines, and you get the Egyptians, and you get the Babylonians, and you get the Assyrians. You get all those through the line of Ham. And that is leading us up to this point where we see this man, Abram, who lives in Ur, the Chaldeans, with his father and his wife and his brothers. And that's where we, we start out with chapter 5 of this book. This is the journey of a man of faith. And I think that can apply to each and every single one of us every single day. We can reminisce about the story of Abraham and apply it into our daily lives because we do need faith. We believe, right? But God help my unbelief. Give me the courage as we prayed to be a man of faith, to step out, to have the courage to go where you send me, no matter what. You see, I'm not sure I have the courage to go where God sends me no matter what. If God sent me into war-torn Afghanistan right now and to, to proclaim the good news to those folks in Afghanistan, would I have the courage to do it? I don't know. You know, that's the, that's the real deal in, in our lives. We are called to be martyrs. Okay, witnesses is what the Greek word really means. To be witnesses for the faith, to have the courage to go. Give me the courage, Lord. I desire this courage. I'm an, I know I'm a coward, but I desire the courage. And when I studied through the, the journey of Abraham, that's what I drew out of this. I saw a man of faith and an imperfect man. Abraham, as we're going to see, was not a perfect man. He didn't have it all figured out. He wasn't this man of great courage, but he was a man of courage. He was a man of faith. Just not the perfect example of faithfulness and courage, but I would say far greater than what I possess. And I think I can relate to him better that way. And maybe you can too.
But this journey of Abram starts in Ur of the Chaldeans. This is an ancient city where this was bustling with activity and trade and people and cultures. Uh, The crossroads of continents all came together in this one little city. And that's where Terah and his sons, one of which was Abram, lived. Well, all of a sudden, Terah uproots his family and he moves. He was headed towards the land of Canaan. But he stops up way up to the north in Haran, and there he settles in. You know, there are there are some scholars who speculate that it might have been because the, the ruling party changed at the time, and maybe they were less favorable to people like Terah and his sons, you know, nomadic tribesmen. And so he, he moved his family out of safety. At least that's part of the speculation. And he, he gets to Haran, and Haran is a city much like Ur, so maybe it's comfortable, it's, uh, you know, familiar surroundings, if you will. And so instead of finalizing the journey by going all the way into the land, he, he stops way to the north, and he gets comfortable, and that's where he dies. And this is where Abram sort of takes over. We read this in Genesis chapter 11, verses 31 and 32. This is where Abram receives the call of God to take his possessions and his family and the, the men in his house and to go into the promised land. All right, well, he he does, but he doesn't get to take the entire family. Lot, his brother's son, does come along with him. So it's Lot and Abram and all the, the men servants and maid servants and all the animals and possessions and Abram's wife all pack up and they start to head south into the land and they move from Haran into Shechem and there he builds an altar. And that we see in Genesis chapter 12 verses 6 and 7. Now what's interesting is as Scott Hahn points out is, you know, you'd think you get into the land, the promised land. Finally, Lord, I've obeyed you. I've, I've, I've set out not knowing what to expect or what, what, what I can, you know, uh, look forward to. And, uh, and I get here, let the blessings roll. Now, now God sends a famine on the land. You know, all that effort, that huge journey, just moving from Ur to Haran was massive in those days. And then to, to uproot again and come into Canaan, you know, into the land of Canaan to Shechem, there builds an altar, offers sacrifice to God, and then all of a sudden there's famine in the land, and now he has to uproot the family again and move down into Egypt. I mean, wow. You know, God, if this is how you treat your friends, who needs enemies? I, I can't remember which saint. I think it was St. Uh, Catherine of Siena, possibly. I could be misquoting that, but I think she said that anyway. So he moves into into Egypt, and we read about this in Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 and following. What's interesting is, you see, this is where we see the the frailty, the human nature of Abram, and how we might relate to it a little bit. He's a man of faith, but he's not a man of of heroic courage, let's say. Because he goes into to the land of Egypt, and he knows his wife is a very beautiful woman. And he knows that uh, men will look at her and want to take her. And if they think that he's her husband, they might kill him and take her. And so he was fearing for his own skin here. Okay? And so what he does is he says, All right, Sarai, have uh, anybody who asks you, you tell them we are brothers and sister, brother and sister, right? And so that way they won't kill me to take you. 
Now, she agrees to do this to save his skin. Now, this ought to remind us of that battle, that epic battle we read about in Genesis chapter 3 between Adam, Eve, and the serpent, the most cunning of all the creatures, right? Where Adam had a choice to save his skin or to save his soul. He, he chooses to save his skin and he foregoes his soul by committing a mortal sin. That kicks this whole journey off, right? Well, this is sort of reminiscent to that, where Abram, in his weakness, his fallen human nature, his concupiscence, decides to not be courageous, to trust God, because God made the promises to him. God sent him out. So instead of fully trusting God and to provide for his safety, instead he, he, he tells this little white lie, because it's not completely false. In fact... Sarai was his sister, his half-sister. They had the same father, they just had different mothers. I know, it's weird, but that's the ancient world. What do you want? So anyway, he, he tells this story that she's his sister, and of course the princes of Egypt look at her and say, wow, she's gorgeous, and, and so she's end up, she ends up going into the harem of Pharaoh. Well, and we read about that in Genesis chapter 12, again in verse 10 and following. But God, he threatens Pharaoh and starts to release these plagues upon Pharaoh. You know, and Pharaoh is like, what is the deal here? What gives? And of course, the jig is up. You know, he figures it out. This woman is not the sister of, of Abram. No, no, no. This woman is the wife of Abram. And he, like, he, he goes, what have you done? What, why have you done this? You know, you're killing me here. And he basically gives back Sarai to Abram. and But then not only does he give back Sarah, but he also gives all this possession, increased animal, increased fortune. You know, Abram all of a sudden finds himself an extremely wealthy person. He already wasn't doing too bad. Now he's like really rolling in it. He's, he's living life on the hog, if you will. So anyway, this is the, the setting by which we see, you know, Abraham's frailty, his human nature, you know, what he intended for evil, God turned around and used for good, so to speak. And we read about this in Genesis chapter 12 also, verses 17 through 20. So this is where Abram is kicked out of Egypt, basically. Pharaoh was like, get out. I don't want anything to do with you. You have brought plague upon my household. Take your wife. Take these possessions. I've repaid you what I for the damages that you've incurred at my hand. Now get out. And so Abram takes Sarai, all the new possessions, all of his, his family, all of his household, all of Lot's household, because Lot also made out in the deal. He also increased his wealth while living in Egypt. And so now they go back to the land of Canaan, now being that much more, you know, wealthy, well-to-do. And so they get back into the land and we see how the, the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abram start to quarrel with one another. That You know, maybe things are a little too tight. Maybe they're a little too close for comfort here. And so uh, Abram goes to Lot and says, look, we shouldn't be fighting. You know, this land is is huge. There's lots to go around here. I tell you what, you choose. Whichever way you decide to go, I will go the opposite because I don't want it to be bad with us. We're we're kinsmen here. You know, out of respect for your father, who's my brother, and for you, my kinsman, I'm going to make this deal. I'm going to allow you to choose first, and then I will choose second. 
Well, Lot, of course, looks to the fertile land of the Jordan Valley and says, well, look at all that greenness. It looks a lot like Egypt. Yeah, that's where I want to go. And so he picks the choicest of the land and he takes all of his herd and his cattle and his people, his men servants and maidservants and his whole house. And he moves his tent towards Sodom. This is in the, the valley of the, of the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea over there. Sodom and Gomorrah, were, which were these very wicked towns. Okay, and so Lot splits off from Abram, and he, he again he moves his tent up to Sodom in Genesis chapter thirteen verses eight through thirteen. Now this does not bode well for Lot. You know, this is a very charitable and courageous act, in my opinion, from Abram. You know, giving his his nephew the choice. Okay, you choose the best land, and I'll take what's left in the desert. <laughs> but God immediately reassures Abraham or Abram at the time. He hadn't had his name changed yet. He reassures him that all of this will be yours, Abram. All of it. I will give it all to you and to your descendants. And so he reassures him. He shores him up at that point. But as I said, Lot, he doesn't have a very favorable outcome. Okay, he's he's put in with some very wicked people. And all of a sudden, as Scott Hahn says, the whole valley erupts in a battlefield. You know, five kings against four kings. They all come together in war. And basically what happens is Sodom gets sacked and all the, the bounty and booty off uh, in Sodom is taken away, including Lot and his whole household. Well, you know, the good news is somebody who, who was a witness to it and sort of escaped and got away was able to make it over to where Abram was living, okay, and told him the whole deal. It says, look, Lot has been taken captive. Well, Abram immediately gets up, takes 318 men, and goes after him. I mean, can you imagine? Lot just stole away the choicest of the land from, from him, you know, leaving him in the desert, leaving him looking for water. And in it, still he holds no grudges. He holds no ill will against his nephew. And at the first sign of trouble, he goes to his rescue against kings and armies. Okay, this is a, a, a nomadic herdsman, a tribesman. Okay, and he's not a trained warrior, but he takes 318 men from his, from his, his people who aren't trained to be domestic warriors. And they go out to recover Lot and his whole household. And so what happens is by night, Abram, he splits his forces up and he basically takes down this, this, these enemy kings and takes all of their possessions, all the, the bounty and booty that they stole. He took, takes all that and recovers Lot and his household as well. He totally saves the day. I mean, could you imagine already he was coming out of Egypt full of all this wealth and these riches, and now he takes down all all these kings, and has now more wealth and more riches. He was a very powerful figure in the land at this time. And what happens? What does he do? Well, we read in Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 20, how he goes to meet this mysterious figure in the land of Salem, in the city of Salem. This is the king of Salem, who also happens to be the priest of the Most High God, the one true God, Melchizedek. This is a very fascinating episode, and in next week's show, I want to get into more detail about this episode, but basically he comes and he offers a tithe, a tenth of everything he's, he has over to this mysterious king, this priest king, who then in turn brings out bread and wine and offers a blessing upon Abram. 
This is a phenomenal encounter. It's packed very richly and deep with some typology that I would love to dive into. But again, we're going to share that for next week. And so that's in Genesis 14, verses 17 through 20, this encounter with this mysterious priest king, priest king Melchizedek, who is king of Salem. Okay, that's one day going to become Jerusalem, which we'll talk about here in a few minutes. Now we see God swearing a covenant again with Abraham, reaffirming this promise of providing land to the descendants of Abram. I keep saying Abraham, but yet his name hasn't changed yet. That's a mistake. His name is Abram at this point. And so God is swearing this covenant with him in Genesis chapter 15, verses 7 through 18. It's very interesting, this this covenant swearing, this oath ceremony, because God commands Abram to bring these animals, you know, to him and to chop them in half and put them, you know, separate the halves from one another. And then he, Abram guards these carcasses until the sun starts to go down. You know, anytime a bird tries to come and eat them, Abraham, you know, whacks them and, and, and sends them away. And then once they come down, you know, God appears and goes in between the two halves of the animal carcasses as a torch of fire and a a pot. This is very interesting because this is an allusion to the day when God brings the people out of the land of Egypt after 430 years of slavery. He proceeds them as a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. So this is a foreshadowing of that event that's coming. And uh, and so we find that again in Genesis chapter 15, 7 through 18. This is where God, again, is reaffirming his covenant promise to Abram that he will give him the land. Okay, giving him a land so that one day he can make a dynasty or a kingdom, an empire, and that he can then bless all nations through him. So this is the first of those three. Then we see Sarai giving Hagar, his, her maid servant, to Abram, her husband, because Sarai feels like, okay, well, God's made these promises to you, but somehow maybe it doesn't include me because God hasn't opened my womb. You know, and I'm not being able to give you a child. So maybe the fulfillment of this will come through my maidservant, Hagar, an Egyptian. And so we read about that in Genesis chapter 16. But we also see how when we try to circumvent the will of God, when we try to drive the ship that, you know, the boat that is God's kingdom, God's will, especially in our own lives, you know, we can really take it way off course. God had no intention whatsoever of fulfilling his promises through the Egyptian woman, Hagar. But what we desired, what we used for evil, God turns around and and he can create something good out of it. But you know what? There are consequences to those actions. And we read about that in this life of this woman, Hagar, because it's her son, Ishmael, which will be born to Abram, which will one day he'll become the, the foundation for the Arab people, and they will fight tooth and nail with the Israelites throughout history. Okay, this is like two brothers going at it all the time. But as we know, it becomes bloody and ugly at times. As we are living in this world today, we see the very the very fulfillment of this right now. And finally, we see in Genesis chapter 17 how God changes the name of Abram and Sarai to Abraham and Sarah, giving them this promise of this name, this dynasty. 
you know, the father, a good father to a father of multitude or a father of nations. That's in Genesis 17, 1 through 16. We see the three strangers. One of them is God coming in Genesis 18 to visit Abraham and Sarah and making that promise once again. And we hear Sarah laugh over it like Abraham laughed when God said he would have a son at such an old age. And God said, why are you laughing? Is not any everything possible for God? Remember that with God, all things are possible. And this is a great story for us to sort of remember when we're thinking of our hardship and how God, it might be impossible for God to provide for our needs. But yet God sends his, him, not only himself, but his angels to tell Abraham and Sarah, with God, all things are possible. That's Genesis 18. Now we see these same three men destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and save Lot's skin, basically, because Lot was so knee deep into Sodom that, you know, he had a hard time trying to remove himself. And these three men save him and his two daughters. His wife is turned into a pillar of salt there because she couldn't give up on the land. She looked back. She couldn't let it go. And so she turns into a pillar of salt. We'll see that illusion come to fulfillment in the people of Israel coming out of the land of Egypt when they too at the golden calf cannot give up on the land of Egypt. They can't give up their their Egyptian gods. And so we see the consequences of that. This is an allusion to that. We see Abraham making deals with the, the Philistine king Abimelech you know, even after he again lied about Sarah or Sarah, his wife, being his sister again. And once again, he not only gets Sarah back, but he gets a bunch of riches as well. I'm going to have to wrap this up very quickly here. But we see Isaac being born. We see Ishmael and Hagar being disinherited out of the family because it is only with Isaac that the covenant will stand. Then in Genesis 22, Abraham brings his only son, Isaac, to be offered up on Moriah. It's a powerful episode that we'll dive deeper into next week on Behold the Man. So I hope you enjoyed that. Make sure you read chapter 5 of Father Who Keeps His Promises so we can dive deeper into it. And take a look at Genesis chapter 22. We'll spend some time looking at the Mount Moriah episode, how Abraham offers his only son. All right, well, make sure you stop by the website, www.catholichack.com. For more information and show notes, may God richly bless you. From the Catholic Underground. Underground.